0: Thank you for tuning in at Ravenna Assembly of God. We hope you enjoy this message and are blessed from it. If you want to tune in to more messages, log on to RavennaAG.com and search under the media tab. Thank you and God bless.
1: It is is the the subject or the difference and to be taught the difference between presumption and faith. You're not gonna hear this message Boy, that's going to drive some people nuts over there with that light going in and out. Sorry, Cheryl, you're in the light, you're out of the light. You're in the light, you're out of the light. I wish you'd get saved and get it over with, all right? (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, there you go again. Let that light shine, girl. Um, Presumption versus faith. What's the difference? Because it's huge. So, what I'm going to ask you to do, first of all, is to realize, in distinguishing the difference between faith and presumption, to follow along with me in your notes there as we read Matthew together. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands, They shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Let me share with you this this story that I don't know if you're familiar with. I remember it from years ago. It's it's the story of Larry and, and Lucy Parker. And it is enough to really make even, I would call, the hardened weep at the story. Wesley was 11 years old. He was the apple of his mom and dad's eyes. He was the hero on the baseball team. And he fell into a diabetic coma in the summer of 1973. The Parkers were members of an Assembly of God church in Barstow, California. And they decided to withdraw their son's insulin treatment and rely on their faith. In God to heal him. Wesley died, and his parents were convicted of manslaughter. The conviction was eventually overturned, uh, but it had followed months of court order counseling and, and community service. But let me share with you just part of the story. They had asked the church to pray for Wesley, to pray for his healing. Faith that they believed meant withdrawing all medication. They thought they had to go, you know, kind of one way or the other, but not both. So they stopped the insulin. And again, three days later, Wesley passed away. Now, I've never read this on any account, but I can visualize that during that time, his parents are sitting beside him on his bed watching him as he slips into a coma. And they're beseeching God. I can see them praising him for the healing, giving positive confession, knowing the insulin would restore him to life, yet he's wanting to trust entirely in God. You can just sort of begin to feel that that spiritual anguish as they cried out to God. Probably in my book, quoting something we just saw from Isaiah 53 in verse 5 which says but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that made us whole and with his stripes we are healed I can hear them saying we believe your word Lord we believe our son is already healed the criminal trial was interesting and in fact Larry, the, the father, he relates how he staggered in a dark night of soul-clinging desper- desperateness to his faith in Jesus. He, he learned something that the psalmist wrote, that if I made my bed in Sheol, thou art there. Don't no matter where you're at, what you're walking through, he's there. Again, the criminal trial would follow and the parents as they're accused of the death of their loved one that they love more than life. and Despite the fact that Larry never ever refuted the doctrine which led him into that error, he did experience the grace of God and a dimension he had never known before. He would later say in the following months that the Lord that the Lord dealt with us in a most incredible, loving way, kind, gentleness, and that His reproof was filled with compassion as He revealed to us one step at a time, or tragic error. Mom, she was driven literally to the brink of insanity as as she was tortured emotionally and mentally, as well as the physical pressure that pretty much almost burst inside of her. She, she literally cried out, God, I can't take it. I, I can't stand it. Please remove it. I can't live with this pain. And you know, God is faithful. He did hear that cry, and he would envelop her and carry her sorrows. I'm I'm sure you can imagine that dad continued to feel the conflict between love and faith in his own heart. His love would want to give Wesley the insulin that he knew would save his life, but his faith had prohibited him from giving him the life-saving drug. That's the struggle. Faith versus love. His, His faith led him to erroneously believe that if he gave into insulin it would cost him his healing. Use medicine and the cure is going to vanish. (laughs) Love said, give it to him anyways. He's dying. Let me tell you something. Love is greater than faith. Period. Tragically, The wrong kind of faith went out. And Larry looks back on this, and he would observe, to withhold medicine, especially in life-giving medicine, it is a very presumptuous act on our part. Allow me to say this. There is a huge difference between faith and presumption. A huge difference. A lot of what passes for faith is really presumption. Larry Parker would explain, and I, I, I'll add, he would explain wisely as he concluded that until God reveals the healing, he expects us to do everything on our part to ease pain and suffering. Until God does what? Reveals the healing. He expects us to do everything on our parts. Now, now let me say this. The primary meaning behind the word presumption is the act of presuming, specifically overstepping of proper bounds, forwardness, and arrogance. So, So here's the question. What happens when Christians, when believers overstep the bounds? Is there such a thing as the sin of presumption? Does the Bible have anything to say about it? And what you're going to find if you'll get into your word that there are no less than eleven references in the Bible referring to presumption. All but one are found in the Old Testament. The the one exception is, is 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 10. We'll get into that later. But in every case, listen, presumption is a deadly sin, period. Don't, 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 don't go, you know, I'm not going to soft-soap this this morning. I, I believe God has given us his wisdom to not only rest in but to use. In, in nine verses in the Old Testament, the direct consequences of presumption was death. In other words, presumption is just as deadly as the sin of witchcraft. Presumption is just as deadly a sin as witchcraft. In fact, let me just take a look at these verses found in Numbers 15 here. It says, but the person who does anything, what? Presumptuously. Whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. I bet you you've never heard that verse preached before, or those verses preached. See, the Hebrew word for cut off, it, it is a powerful expression In Hebrew, it it literally means to destroy and to consume utterly, to be cut down. That's why I I can't help but believe that the psalmist, when, when he prayed, prayed this to keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Explanation point. Then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgressions that's found in Psalm 1913. It's in your notes. If you go back in scripture to 1 Samuel chapter 13 you're gonna read the story of where Saul had sinned in a crucial area. He and Samuel had agreed to meet at Gilgal in seven days and Saul was was under this intense pressure because the Israeli soldiers were deserting him On a daily basis. You you have the blistering heat that's almost too hot to bear. And the daily taunts of of what I will refer to as a gargantuous Goliath. Who who basically shook up the troops. The ones who remained that were there with Saul were chicken. (laughs) Because they followed him basically just trembling all the way. So seven days passed. And when the seventh day came. And Samuel hadn't showed up yet. Saul was just beside himself because his time had run out. There's only one thing to do, and as a result, he did it. He crossed over what I would call a sacred line and presumed to act as a priest. He offered the sacrifice that took place prior to assuming battle stations. If there was one thing that Jews had been taught clearly it was never to transgress the sacred responsibility of the priests and the Levites. Saul didn't. He, he, he in. Did. He was afraid his, his entire army would end up leaving him. So Samuel greets him with the following words found in chapter 13 there. He says, and I'm taking this Because I love the way it's expressed from the living Bible. He says, you fool. You fool. You have disobeyed the commandment of the Lord your God. He was, (laughs) look, read this. He was planning to make you and your descendants king of Israel forever. But now your dynasty must end. For the Lord wants a man who will obey him. You've lost the kingdom. a dynasty's been destroyed. And and, and a man who has lost the opportunity because he acted presumptuously. One of the most famous incidents of presumption is is there in the history of of Israel that occurred under Moses' leadership. He had about 12 spies, if you remember, that he sends out into the Promised Land, and 10 of them come back with a perfectly what i would call secular account it was realistic yes but it was without an iota of faith only caleb and joshua give a positive report the negative confession of the of of, of the 10 was so disconcerting that the people were basically ready to pick up rocks and stone caleb and joshua for their conviction that God would still give them the land, now because of this, God's ready to wipe out Israel, and he does. He, he what he does is he offers to make Moses a nation greater than Israel had ever been. So Moses pleads with God, and and saved their lives as well as their inheritance, but God was adamant. On one point, he utterly refused to let them enter the promised land. Only Caleb and and Joshua would qualify because of their faith. Then the people become, you remember, contrite. They're they're just, oh, well, sorry, but it was too late. Because God had already spoken. But, but now they're all eager and they're all filled with this miraculous courage and, and said, here we are, we're ready. Yeah. We realized we've, we've all sinned and, and we're now ready to go on into the land that the Lord's promised us. As, uh, you know. and, and Moses, I can see him just shaking his head in total disbelief. Look what it says there in Numbers 41. And Moses said, now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? for this is going to succeed do not go up lest you be defeated by your enemies for the lord is not among you but they presumed to go up to the mountain it is clear that the old testament dealt with it in full and to quickly summarize it what i've been saying here first of all number 1 is that presumption is so deadly That the majority of cases, it was punishable by death. Number two, in all but one instance, presumption is a sin against God. And and number three, in most cases, presumption, watch this, is linked to the Word of God. Do you get that? Presumption is linked to the Word of God. To claim a prophecy... To be the word of the Lord when it is not the word of the Lord was punishable by death. To overstep the word of the Lord. To go when his word had not come resulted in destruction. But what I want to show you this morning is what I believe the greatest example of temptation to presumption that you can find in Scripture. And it occurs in the life of Jesus. So so how do you tell the difference between bold faith and foolish presumption? My heart has always been, and you know me, to build faith, not to annihilate it. But I, I believe it's clear, both from Scripture and in my life, practical experience, that presumption exists and that it's to be avoided like the plague. Well, what to me is interesting is that presumption is such a universal possibility that even our Lord was tempted by it. Now, now think about this, because if out of these, the, 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 this incredible arsenal of temptation weapons that the enemy has to choose from, he chose presumption. And there's got to be a reason for that. Presumption, friend, is a sin that particularly tempts bold, courageous men of faith who are eager to accomplish something for God. Now, I'll just put it out there plainly. If even Jesus was tempted by the sin of presumption, then it is a possibility all of us are tempted by the sin of presumption. So I want to remind ourselves of the verse. It's found in Matthew chapter 4. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now to give you a little understanding of this, this thing towers about 170 feet above the ground in in Kidron. And the pinnacle of the temple was probably the most conspicuous spot in all of Jerusalem. You, You can easily, if you picture it, picture Jesus... And I can see him up on the top there, and his garment just fluttering in the wind, kind of, kind of thing. Not only up against the the pinnacle, but also the blue skies that are there. And in this really kind of an inaccessible uh, place, it's also very highly visible, even today. You got throngs of visitors that 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 go to, and it's it's referred to as the Mosque of Omar now where the ancient temple stood. It's also been estimated during this time that Jesus was there going through this, which was the time of Passover that as many as 2 million people would celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It, if you put it together and get into the, the headset of Satan's tactics, it would have been hard to have found a better launching pad For this instantaneous miracle ministry. And I've got to take a look at this. Because I doubt if you've ever been taught this. But the devil was a direct and to the point. If you are the son of God, he says, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up. Lest you dash your foot against the stone. You got the devil playing a trump card. He presented Jesus with a bona fide shortcut to success. I mean, nothing could have stopped him. I mean, you got to figure, if Jesus did something like that, the people would have just gone bonkers and followed him anywhere. A man who could swoop down, what, what, you know, and, <laughs> he's flying, Okay? Nobody, no, ever see. I mean, what are the Israelites looking for? They're looking for a Messiah to drive Rome out of Jerusalem. And that was what these people wanted more than anything else. And for somebody that can soar like an eagle? In the previous temptation, Jesus had been tempted by Satan concerning bread. And since he had nothing to eat for 40 hours, or, I'm sorry, 40 days, got to thinking about the fact you probably haven't eaten in a couple hours, and you're really hungry right about now, right? But since he had nothing to eat for 40 days, you know, I don't know about you, but I find it natural for the enemy to tempt me along lines like that. It was a natural temptation. But Jesus did what? He answered Satan with Scripture. And... And he did so probably to give us an example or maybe even to remind himself that true protection was his as long as he stood upon the word. So Satan considers his response. You know what Satan does? He goes, Aha! Jesus' strong point is scripture. Well, I know a few verses myself and two can play at this game. If He could get Jesus to just launch out on a single Bible passage. Say that with me. A single Bible passage. One more time. A single Bible passage. With with, with no special word from the Father, he would destroy the Son of God. I, I I, I don't know if you've ever noticed the words that he uses here in the Scripture. But they are uncannily clever. If you are the Son of God. That, that's the first thing. Jesus, if you are the Son of God. Now, his argument is rational, right? He's basically saying that if you want things to change for the better, there's a fast way to gain these people's alliance. A, a shortcut, a shortcut, a shortcut, shortcut is what I lay down, and I don't know about you, if you want to change things for the better if, if, if you want a shortcut to your ambition here then let the people see this great miracle how God favors you and you will win the world to the side of goodness and truth if you are really who you say you are God's going to take care of you And I can even prove it from the Bible. So what does he do? He quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. Listen, almost that, well, he almost quotes it. Because what's left out is crucial. And it's just a single phrase. But it's a phrase so significant that most believers miss it. The phrase he omitted, not, not wanting to remind Jesus, was this. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, this, here it is, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. In other words, in the ordinary business of life, the angels do guard you. But that doesn't give you any right to go steeple hopping. Hello? By omitting the exact quotation and by misapplying the verse, Satan made this a presumptuous act. Just cast yourself down. Trust God. Trust God. Let me say this as a result of experience. God never performs miracles to prove he is God. God performs miracles to meet the needs of his people and for his own glory. That's a huge statement, and I hope you chew on it for a while. So what was Jesus' response? Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Let me tell you something right up front. This is the beauty Scripture. Friend, know your Bible. Don't know parts of your Bible. Know your Bible. Scripture, compared with Scripture, gives a self balancing power to keep the believer from the fallacy of building doctrines on one verse. Scripture, I've always told you, just don't look at that scripture. See what happens before it and after it. Compare scripture with scripture because it gives a self-balancing power to keep the believer from the fallacy of building doctrines on one verse. No one has the right. These, These are according to the words of Jesus. No one has the right to put God presumptuously to the test. Not even the Son of God. No one has the right to force God's hand. The Father was silent and the Son did not presume. In this case, presumption was to take the general provision of God's word and make it apply to a specific situation where God had not spoken. Please understand me when I say this. There is a huge difference between tempting God and proving God. Israel had gone through the Red Sea proved, or I should say, Israel heard God and went through the Red Sea proving God. The Egyptians did the exact same thing and they died for their presumption. What's the difference? Israel heard a word from God. Egypt did not. Israel heard a word from God. Egypt did not. Israel moved forward at the spoken word of God, but God did not speak to the Egyptians, and when they moved, they perished. There is a difference between the word of God in general and the word of God that is specifically spoken to you. In the Greek New Testament, this is sometimes expressed, as you know, by two different words. Logos, rhema. Logos denotes the expression of thought, not the mere name of the object, but the body, conception, or idea like God. In other words, you can think of logos as sort of this universal thing. Logos is the gospel. It is the Ten Commandments. It is the sum total of God's utterances. They are true everywhere and under all conditions. Now the word rhema is a specific statement, whereas logos tends to be general. Rhema is more specific and definite. So let me put it this way. The ultimate meaning of logos is the incarnate Word of God, who is Jesus Christ. He is the Word which ends all words. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, according to Hebrews 13. He is God's last Word to men, the eternal Word of the eternal God. Rama, on the other hand, It often denotes that which is spoken, which is uttered in speech or in writing. It is often a word spoken for a particular occasion. The now word of God. The emphasis with rhema is is not on thoughts, nor on its objects quality, nor is it as all inclusive as the word logos but the emphasis is the exact is the actual spoken word and sometimes it is a word that is heard and then acted upon that's probably been my experience more than anything else is to hear his word spoken in me which i then act on even though i'm like you got to be kidding me i have spoken things to people and I have wa- I've, I've listened to myself, and I've gone, you're nuts. And watched as God performed his work. Because it was a rhema word. It was a, a word for that occasion, for that specific experience. Again, it is a word a man takes action on. It is a personal word. Romans 10 says, the word is near you. Even in your mouth and in your heart. That word word there is Rhema. That's that's the word that's where it's used. Now, now hear this his word again says right here, as we were talking about in, in chapter or not chapter, in Psalm nineteen, verse thirteen. Psalms doesn't have chapters. they they're psalms. That's why they call them Psalms. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sin. Sins, plural. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. The psalmist, I believe, was well aware of the consequences. Strange as it might seem, a person can know the will of God and even attempt to perform it and still be presumptuous. You, you can probably recall... David when he was bringing up the ark out of kirjath Jerem and, and and all of Israel you know, had, had just come out to, to gather around and to honor the ark and praise the Lord. And, and naturally, I, I believe that they, they wanted the ark to have the best. So they put it on a brand new cart and, 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 and the whole occasion of bringing back the ark became this huge jubilant celebration. All the people began to dance and they began to sing as they shouted before God, worshiping Him, praising Him. I mean, it had to be a sight to behold. And suddenly, you have a disaster that strikes. Someone in the street department goofed because the cart hit a pothole that threatened to, you know, discharge the ark off the car, so naturally the driver just reaches back to help stabilize the precious cargo but he had no sooner reached about to st- around to stabilize it when he was struck dead David becomes fearful horrified and he also becomes angry what went wrong <laughs> didn't, didn't God want the ark to come back Why had God killed the poor man when he only wanted to help? David was so terrified that for the next three months, he left the ark at the house of Obed-Edom. And during that time, David would do his homework, and he would discover that he had been presumptuous. He found out that God's will must be executed by God's man in God's way, in God's time. So David was the right man. And his timing was, yes, it was right, but he had used the wrong method. Only priests were permitted to carry the ark. So he calls the priests together, and this is what he says to them. He said to them, you are the heads of the father's house of the Levites sanctify yourselves you and your brethren that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it for because you did not do it the first time the Lord God the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. Let me just say this from my heart that whenever the church or a segment of the church takes a particular teaching or truth of the Bible and detaches it from its relation to the total truth pushing it to what I would call its logical extreme it inevitably results in something called heresy and friend heresy is truth distorted exaggerated to an intolerable extreme it is out of focus, out of balance with the whole. In fact, you might say the whole secret of good doctrine is caught up in that incredible beautiful word balance. Let's let's be real. It's not easy staying in balance because it not only means constant comparison Of the scripture with scripture. It also means a constant review over pride and presumption in thinking that we alone have the right answers. I'm gonna say that again. It also means a constant review over pride and presumption. Let me let me be straight up with you: pride and presumption go hand in hand. And so I'll say it again. When I when I come to this, it means a constant review, a constant comparison of scripture with scripture. Continually, look. Not only do our our heads have to be in right in order to have proper understanding, but so do our hearts, and it is infinitely harder to guard our hearts than it is our heads. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Hear that again. Thy word or your word have I hid in my that's a rhema word. That is a now word. That is a for me word. That is to me. Can I, can, I, can I just say something? One of the biggest problems with presumption is, is that we take other men's rhemas and try to make them work for ourselves. So we'll read all the books, follow all the patterns, look at all the formulas, and try to apply them, and that was God's rhema word for that person that's why he would or she was able to walk in or do or whatever, but that was not look, that's I'm sorry, but that was God's rain for, for them at the time. And we try to copy it. That's presumption. Know. Well, man, are you know. wet blanket. No, I'm not. I'm wanting you to understand that relationship between you and your God. Because God has a word he wants to give you. And when he gives that to you, hide it in your heart that you might not walk independently of him. That you will not sin against him. Look, he wants to speak that word into your life. That's why I'm going to be honest with you. Taking the steps that we'll take over the next couple weeks is definitely not what I want to do. It tears me apart not to be able to know God's presence, not to be able to walk into hospital rooms or or nursing homes or to sit down in people's homes. It it rips me apart not to be able to take those steps because people say, oh, it's okay, I trust you. That's presumption. That's not wisdom. Wisdom. And whether you believe in this thing or not, whether you look at the numbers and say, well, I just know they're making them all. Oh, they count them double this and that. I understand all that. But that does not eclipse the fact that there are people dying in ICU rooms, that there are people suffering at home that are being beaten up by this thing, and this thing is not going away. And it's something that is horribly wrong with this world today that I believe is straight out of the pits of hell that need to be confronted by his church. It's a
0: time
1: for the church to become the church. That's called the video. Thank you. Would you stand with me? Go ahead. Would you sing with me this this one last final song? I believe this is where we're at. Look, friend, I'm I'm not trying to, (laughs) how should I put this? I am as concerned as the next person. But it's on Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand.
0: in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to know the saith the Lord Jesus Jesus how I trust Radio.
1: Don't know that relationship with Him. Let me tell you something. Presumption is something that reigns as supreme in our lives, that we walk in our independence and pride of. But I believe that the Holy Spirit has been working with you this morning. That there's been a conviction that only He and His aliveness can bring. And He leaves that choice with you. Will you believe upon him? Will you say yes to what he has done, to his love and to his forgiveness? If you would be saying yes in your heart to that relationship with him, would you this morning, right where you stand, would you just slip that hand up that says, yeah, that's me, I'm affirming that this morning. I'm saying yes to Jesus because I just want to pray with you. As you put that, that action to your decision says, yes, I believe. Thank you, Lord. Lord, what have we been hearing from you lately? What have we known you to say in our hearts? Not out of an attitude or editorial or opinion, but according to your spirit, according to your word. What have you been saying to us? What have we been hearing you say? That which we hide in our hearts, <laughs> that we might not sin against you. Holy Spirit, I pray for this house and I pray for believers that will rise up as the church and go boldly as they've never gone before. Yes, Lord, declaring the logos, the principles of God, which are yes and amen. But Lord, before we act out, step out in something of presumption, may we be convicted, held back. May we know what it means to hear from you, from your word, from your sweet whisper. Within our spirits, teach us, show us, guide us, direct us that we may rise boldly, declaring and speaking the word of God in all boldness, that your name would be blessed, your kingdom furthered, and that you in all things would be glorified. Bring this house together, I pray, as never before. Let her know the the cause and purpose, the destiny and the direction that you have laid before her. This is not anything but an obstacle you have before us that we will walk around by your leading and guiding to continue on to that which you have directed and purposed to be accomplished by your house and by your people. For the calling upon this house is the exact calling upon these people that you have called into this place for the furthering of your kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in Jesus' name. Will you say that with me? In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.